Father, we come to your word now and ask that you would help us to understand it, to believe it and to be shaped by it. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Well, do have a seat. Uh, It is All Saints Day today, as I'm sure you know. And over the last 2,000 years or so, uh, the disciple Thomas has become somewhat of a patron saint for all those who will not believe until they see. You'll remember uh, how Thomas uh, turned to the other disciples who had had an encounter with the risen Jesus and said, unless I see the nail marks on his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side... I will not believe. Now, maybe you can understand why Thomas said that. Dead people don't usually come back uh, from the grave again, particularly one who's been so brutally killed. So asking for physical proof isn't necessarily too bad, except, of course, that Thomas was faced with a whole room of his closest friends who had told him that they had seen the risen Lord and whose faces and demeanours would have demonstrated that fact. As the gloom and despondency of a few days before had gone, Thomas had plenty of physical evidence, but it wasn't enough until he met Jesus face to face. Maybe you, although you are regular in church, take a similar view. You're incredibly sad that you can't just see Jesus now and, you know, poke those nail marks and put your hand in his side. Maybe you'd like to go back in time and see him and hear him preach. And maybe you think that if only you could do that, then you would believe and trust him with your life. But I'm not sure that's true. In that passage that Jack read to us uh, this morning, There are people who have all that evidence and yet they still fail to believe. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, had witnessed signs and miracles beyond our wildest dreams. And yet they still come to Jesus and demand yet another sign. Well, it's their lack of faith and the sign that Jesus gives And the proper response that we should make, which is our focus this morning. Now, if you are solid in your faith already, I hope that the next few minutes will strengthen that faith and maybe give you courage uh, to give an interesting poke to those people that you know are dithering about making a decision, who can't seem to come down one way or the other. But if your position this morning is more like that of the Pharisees, you're desperately needing another sign before you will believe then I hope you'll pay particular attention to Jesus' response. You will find it challenging, it may be uncomfortable, but it may actually lead you to him. Five points this morning, so you can count them off, so you know where we are in the talk. Here's the first one. Jesus condemns their willful unbelief. Teacher, we want a sign from you, said the Pharisees. Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Where are we in the Gospels? Well, by this time, Jesus has cleansed lepers, healed the paralysed, cast out demons, calmed storms, given sight to the blind, voices to the mute and raised the dead. And that's without all the unnamed uh, 
miracles that Jesus has performed. Matthew uh, says in Matthew 8 verse 16, uh, at one occasion he drove out evil spirits with the word and healed all who were ill. We have no idea how many that is. Countless miracles. Now the Pharisees and teachers of the law wouldn't have seen all of those, but they weren't done in private. The disciples saw them, the crowd saw them and were thrilled, but with these religious leaders would not be convinced. Notice I'm not saying that they weren't yet convinced. Actually, they would not be convinced. That's the implication here. That's why Jesus calls them a wicked and adulterous generation, because no matter what they had seen, they would not, they refused to be convinced. It was willful unbelief. So they still, though, come to Jesus and ask for a sign, not another miracle or exorcism. They want Jesus to do something dramatic, something sudden that will convince them. I wonder if that reminds you of someone else in the gospel story. How about Matthew 4, verse 3? The tempter came to Jesus and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Demanding a sign from Jesus. Now, of course, even if Jesus had turned the stones to bread, Satan would not have bowed down and worshipped him. In the same way, these religious leaders would not have believed, even if Jesus had done an amazing sign for them then. That's why he calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. They may have looked morally uh, upright, but they were in rebellion against God. They may have kept the sacrifices, but they were spiritually compromised. They knew the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah better than anyone else. Um, They had seen signs which anyone with eyes to see and a heart ready to believe would have known that they pointed to Jesus. But what they saw was not enough and it would never be enough. So Jesus condemned their willful unbelief. I hope that doesn't describe you this morning. Secondly, though, interestingly, Jesus does offer a sign. He calls it the sign of Jonah. Verse 40, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of of the earth. What Jesus is speaking about is death, burial and resurrection, isn't he? That's the analogy he's drawing. It's not an exact explicit prediction that he like the ones he will give in Matthew 16 and 20, but it is clear Jesus is saying the sign you're looking for, the one that will convince or not will be the death and resurrection of Jesus. They wanted a sign and they would get one. And they would see it too. Jesus was publicly killed. Many of the religious leaders were there. He was publicly laid in a tomb and they knew which one it was because they asked Pilate to put guards outside. And in the same way, Jesus' resurrection would be attested to by many witnesses also. He was seen by Mary and the women by the two men on the way to Emmaus, by the disciples, together or in small groups. And of course, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this, after that, 
After those smaller appearances, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, many of whom are still living, though some are fallen asleep. He's saying, when Paul wrote this, you can go and check it out. There are hundreds of eyewitnesses. The resurrection of Jesus is one of the most well-attested events in human history, certainly from ancient history. Not only are the number of witnesses so large, but the impact on their lives and on the world since then has been dramatic. Think about the disciples for a moment. From being fearful, hiding away, gloom-laden, depressed, they go out and spread the good news of Jesus, fear, uh, risking life and limb, many giving their, their lives to proclaim what they believed to be the truth, that Jesus had risen from the dead. They would not have done that unless they had seen him. And think too about the impact that the teachings of Jesus have made on the world. Remember that he was executed at about 33 years of age, called a blasphemer by the Jews, a traitor and rebel by the Romans, that he never wrote a book, never held high office in this world, that during his adult life he never even left the country. If he had not risen from the dead, his teachings would have been lost to history. And yet... Western culture, in fact, countries all over the world have been shaped by the teachings of Jesus. The value and dignity of human life, the wickedness of slavery and oppression, the desire we all have for the powerful to serve and protect the weak, they all come from the teachings of Jesus and nowhere else. And we know about them, they have shaped the world because Jesus rose from the dead. The religious leaders asked for a sign and boy did they get one. The greatest sign of all, the resurrection of Jesus, which changed everything. So here's my question, do you believe it? Do you believe it? If you're still trying to work out your place in the world, what life is about, whether there is a God and if there is, then how can you get to know him? Then the resurrection of Jesus stands as the greatest of all signs. If you can disprove it, Christianity falls flat. The resurrection of Jesus is not true. We should have nothing to do with him and nothing to do with the church. But if it is true, then it changes everything. If he did rise from the dead, then it proves that he is God as he claimed. If he rose from the dead, then we need to obey his teaching. Repent of our sin and turn from it. And if he rose from the dead, we need to follow him with our lives as his disciples. If you're looking for the reason, the most compelling reason to commit your life and trust your death and eternal destiny to Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus is that reason. Consider it, mull it over. Give it your best shot to explain it away. You will not be able to do it. And when you fail, 
then come and kneel before him in repentance and faith. Let him take your sin. Let him carry your burdens. Let him welcome you into his father's family forever. That's the sign of Jonah. That's the firm ground on which our faith is based. Sadly, it's all too clear that these unbelieving religious leaders will not be convinced even by the resurrection of Jesus. So thirdly, we come to these two witnesses for the prosecution. Verses 41 to 42 take us, as it were, into the judgment seat of God, around the throne room of God. In the dock are the unbelievers, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, and to the side stand some witnesses. The first group are from Nineveh. If you remember the Old Testament story, you'll know that Nineveh is the city to which Jonah was sent. Jonah didn't want to go. He headed off in the opposite direction. The boat got caught in a storm. He was thrown overboard and was swallowed by a huge fish where he spent three days and three nights coming to his senses. Eventually, he did come to his senses and the fish vomited him out onto dry land, at which point he went into Nineveh, no doubt still smelling a fish, and proclaimed the good news of God and called people to repent. How did the Ninevites respond to this great sign of Jonah being uh, brought back to life, as it were, from the the depths of the watery grave? Well, they repented and believed. And now, Jesus says, someone greater than Jonah is here. Someone whose uh, resurrection is far greater. And what will be the religious leaders' response? Well, they will not believe it. The wicked pagan Ninevites saw the sign of Jonah and turned back to God. These religious leaders, rooted in the scriptures, part of God's chosen people, will not follow suit. The second witness is the Queen of the South, sometimes called the Queen of Sheba. 1 Kings 10 tells us how she heard of Solomon's fame and came to hear his wisdom. Now, Solomon wasn't a worker of miracles. But his wisdom marked him out as someone who should be listened to. So this African ruler, perhaps the queen of Ethiopia, travelled hundreds and hundreds of miles to learn from him. These religious leaders had Jesus in their midst, right on their doorstep, teaching with a wisdom and authority far greater than that of Solomon. And yet they did not believe. Even without the miracles, Jesus' teaching should have been enough to convince them that he was the Messiah, but they would not do it. These religious leaders are brought into the dock and called to account for not seeing the signs, not believing the evidence. I wonder uh, about us. What about us? We live in a time of unparalleled access to the scriptures. In books, on the internet, on our phones. You can have someone reading it to you. There are more Christian books being published now than than at any time in history. Some of them are over there on the shelf. The amount of faithful Bible teaching from churches around the globe is astonishing uh, in in its number. 
And not only has the case for Christian faith been made by preachers and pastors, but it's been made by philosophers and scientists, poets and musicians, and by the millions and millions of ordinary people whose lives have been transformed by coming to Christ. The evidence is there for us. And if you are still on the outside, undecided, can I ask this question? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? The evidence is at your fingertips. You don't need to travel to the far side of the world to hear it. It's all here in the scriptures. And we are called to believe it and accept it. Of course, following Jesus has consequences for our lives. And we are to count the cost. We are to think deeply. And that's okay as long as we're doing it with the right heart seeking the truth, not just looking for excuses to put it off. But just as there is a cost of following Jesus, so fourthly, we see that there are consequences for unbelief. Particularly for those who have heard the gospel again and again. In the previous passage, if you were here last week, you would have heard how Jesus cast these demons out of this man. Demons that have made him blind and mute. It's with that in mind, I think, that Jesus tells this parable of a person who is freed from the powers of the evil one. But rather than turning now to God in faith and trust, his soul stays empty. And so the evil spirit that has been travelling around returns, bringing with it a bunch of friends, so that the state of the man is worse than it was to begin with. Let me put it another way. Imagine that someone leaves you a house in their will and you go and see it and you see that this house is in a bit of a dilapidated state and there is a squatter living there. You manage to get the squatter evicted, you do up the house... But instead of either living in it yourself or putting new tenants in, uh, you leave it for a while, at which point the original squatter returns with a bunch of his friends. And this renewed, revitalised, refurbished house is now far more of a mess than the one originally. What's the point Jesus is making? He's saying that it is possible to... Hear the good news of Jesus and to not believe it, to keep putting it off. But by doing so, there is a cost to our souls. Many people come to church, whether it's once a year or maybe more often throughout the year. And for many of them who have yet to put their trust in Jesus, coming along is a bit like getting an inoculation. You get just a little bit of religion And it saves you having to think about the real thing. And hearing the good news again and again, and yet time after time refusing to bow the knee before Jesus, ends up hardening our hearts. So that if we're not careful, it is harder for us to believe than it was at the beginning. There is a cost to ignoring the call to come and repent. The longer we leave it, the harder it gets. And just as that was a warning to these religious leaders, so it's a warning to us. You see, there is a day of salvation. There is a moment of opportunity. 
And it is here and now this morning. But the more we put it off, the more excuses we make, the harder our hearts become and the worse our spiritual state. So let me plead with you this morning, if you are not yet a disciple of Jesus, then by all means, take some time to carefully examine the claims of Jesus. Look at the evidence for him yourself. It's right to do that, but don't keep putting it off. Don't keep knocking down the decision down the road. God has revealed himself in history in the person of Jesus. He has shown him to be Lord and Saviour by raising him from the dead. He has brought you to this talk today. And if you sense his calling to repent and believe, please do not wait. He is utterly trustworthy. He is holy and good. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. His love for you knows no bounds. Come to him. Be one with Jesus. Be born again today. How does that happen? How do we join his family? We Get a clue towards that in our final section. Final point today, the way to be one with Jesus. At the end of this passage, Jesus' family turn up, his mother, his brothers, maybe his sisters too. And uh, they announce that they've come to see him. Don't know whether you thought Jesus' response was a little harsh. He seems to ignore them and point to his disciples and say, no, 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 they're not my family. This is my family. The ones who do the will of God. Now, we should never think that Jesus is uh, unkind to his family. He is the perfect sinless son of God. He would have loved his parents and siblings far more than we will ever love ours. The point he's making here is that there is a bond that is more important than that of our natural family. And it is part of being part of his family, being one with Jesus. How do we do that? We become a member of his family by doing the will of his father. What is that will? 1 John 3, 23 tells us that it is to believe in the one he has sent. We don't join God's family by being born into the right human family, whether Jewish or otherwise. We don't join the family of God because of our moral excellence or natural beauty or intellectual powers. Thank goodness. Otherwise, there would be no way for me to get in. We don't join God's family by our religious devotion or church attendance. We join the family of God when we trust and obey. As we heard some earlier, when we place our trust in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour and take up our cross and follow him. The unbelieving religious leaders demanded a sign And the sign Jesus gave them was his death and resurrection. If you're outside God's family this morning, what more do you expect God to do to convince you? He's done it all already by raising Jesus from the dead. And he invites you to put your doubts and fears aside and to put your trust in him. I'm going to close with a short prayer. If you've never yet made a decision to trust in Jesus, then why not make this prayer your own this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, though I am sinful and rebellious,
I believe that you love me and that by Jesus' death on the cross, you have made a way for my sin to be forgiven and for me to be brought into your family. I believe too that by his resurrection, you have shown Jesus to be Lord and judge. So I admit my guilt and rebellion against you and ask that according to your promises and mercy, you would forgive me and cleanse me. By your spirit, help me now to know and obey your commands and live as a disciple of Jesus for the rest of my life. Amen. If you prayed that for the first time this morning, do come and have a chat with me afterwards. I'd love to give you some things to encourage you as you walk as a disciple of the Lord. For now, though, we're going to turn to our intercessions and Janet is going to come and lead us. Thank you, Janet.